we get to go old school. So I have no, no graphics for you. Well, I have them. We're ju- we just can't see them. Uh, so, but I, I can see them. Are we on there yet? You sure? I'm coming out okay? All right. Great. Um, the chapter 12, as we finished it up, uh, the book of Revelation, gave us a bit of insight regarding the nature of true spiritual warfare. Not the idea of spiritual warfare that may be a little more, um, how do we put it, uh, science fiction-y, the way people have thought in the past, uh, but uh, genuine spiritual warfare, what we're really up against. Uh, James Hamilton, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation, sums up what we looked at last time very well. He puts it this way, uh, quote, By his death and resurrection and ascension, Christ defanged the dragon with the seven heads and ten horns. And Satan no longer has any standing in heaven to accuse believers. He knows his time is short, and he's making war on the woman and her seed. We saw the woman last time as basically the church uh, in all generations, from the past to the present. But how exactly Satan wages this war? It's not the Doctor Strange kind of war where you've got... Uh, all kinds of power coming out of your hands and things like that. How he wages that war is what chapter 13 really focuses on. And what emerges in this chapter is a picture of two beasts. That's what the text says. So 12 ends, if you've got your Bible there, and you're going to have to use your Bible this morning because I don't have slides for you. If you look at the last verse in chapter 12, verse 17, it says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's the move into the next chapter. There we see Satan standing on the sand of the sea. And he's going to call a beast out of this sea. And as we've seen all along uh, throughout the apocalypse and other places in scripture, when the Bible uses the figure of the sea like this in a picture, it's to give you a picture of that which is unstable, unknowable, things that are mysterious and dangerous. So Satan calls this beast out of what's safe, out of unsaved humanity, out of un, the unredeemed world. He calls this first beast out, and then in 11, through the balance of the chapter, he's going to give us another beast. He's going to call that beast out of the land, and we'll have to look at that next time and, and then see how the two factor together, although we'll get just a, a taste of that this morning. But what we have at this point is Satan and this one beast. And the beast, given all that's said about him uh, in here and then in more detail in chapter 17. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on detail on this beast. I'm going to let that happen in chapter 17 where it gets unfolded more. But this beast is most often identified as what we would call the Antichrist. In fact, this chapter ends with the very familiar idea from film and novel and uh, even even uh, kind of uh, popular Christianity. It ends with this beast who gives a mark to all those that are his, and the number of the beast is 666. 
I can't address that this morning. We're going to have to address that next time we get together in the portion. We're only going to deal with the first 10 verses of this chapter this morning. But when I use the word antichrist, when scripture uses the word antichrist, it conjures up all kinds of images in the mind. Uh, not the least of which is probably some little kid with 666 tattooed on the back of his head. They call him Damien. Um, you know, you, you get these kind of, uh, of strange scientific, uh, uh, science fiction-y kind of pictures of Antichrist. And, and they picture him ultimately as this charismatic world leader with almost supernatural powers who's just waiting to lop off the heads of anyone who doesn't worship him and has control over a one-world government and by means of a one-world religion. Uh, It's a scary thought. And it is the one I think that's most popular today. But it might surprise not a few of you this morning that not all in the church have held to quite that picture of the Antichrist. Um, that, that's, that's not always been the way it was. In fact, from the second century on, there have been two major understandings of who the Antichrist is and what that looks like. Both of them are orthodox. Both of them have their pluses and their minuses. But I want to introduce you to both so that you understand where we're going in this study. And again, some of this may be really new to some of you. Bear with me. Let's stick with the scripture and think through a few things, and there might be some surprises and some good things for you. The first view that I think we're most familiar with is the view that Antichrist will be a historical, literal person who will try to pass himself off as Christ with the goal of replacing him and then wreaking havoc on the world. That, that may be the most common view. We're waiting for this Antichrist person to show up on the scene. And uh, the first guy that we have in, in, the, uh, in church history who really popularizes that view is an early church father by the name of Irenaeus. He lived from 130 to 202, so pretty early in the church. And Irenaeus is a prime example of holding this view of Antichrist being a literal figure, a person who comes on the scene and does certain things. And he, along with many other very solid, very excellent people who I would gladly study other under, follow that same, that same thought. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, Robert Mounts, George Eldon Ladd, uh, John Wolver, John MacArthur, uh, Chuck Swindoll. It is the most common view, I think, in American evangelicalism today. And it has this political one-world government view at its base. And it's legitimate. You can build that out of the scripture. The other view, however, is that Antichrist isn't so much a person, an individual, as it is a pervasive heresy that deludes the world and keeps people from the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. Now, where do we find that in church history? Well, we find it First of all, with John's personal disciple, Polycarp. He was the first one to articulate this view. So we may be wrong, but we aren't alone. Um, John or Polycarp, who lived from 69 to 155, and who was a personal disciple of the Apostle John, who 
wrote the apocalypse, takes this view that Antichrist isn't a person, but it's a thought system, a world view. He was followed by Tertullian, 160 to 220, to name a few. And this idea of Antichrist being a false teaching with perhaps a primary false teacher um, being the face of the false teaching. We're going to come back to that in the latter part of this chapter. Um, that, that, that was prevalent in the church all along. So we're not looking at something new here at all. And the emphasis then isn't political or personal. We aren't looking for some guy to start a one-world government. Uh, it's different than that. And for this reason, because of this view, and because it was prevalent in the church for many centuries, um, it, 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 matter of fact, it was the most prevalent view, uh, even though um, Irenaeus, as I mentioned earlier, had the other view. Uh, the Reformers identified Antichrist as with the papacy, not with a specific pope, not to say that an individual pope is the Antichrist, but with the office of the papacy, with the, the Roman Catholic system that was deceiving so many from the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ through their theological outlook. And now that's the direction I'm going to take as we work through this. And, um, and I believe it's the one that has the most biblical support. And I'll put the word most in quotes because you can build a case for both, but I think this one is, is the one that's most um, in keeping with the, the broader section of data. And as I said before, both views have their pluses and their minuses. So, uh, you know, if, if don't get your shorts in a twist. If you don't agree with me on this, it's okay. Uh, I completely support your, your right to be wrong. Uh, so we'll, we'll just work through that. Whichever view you take, uh, and we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures this morning, we have the words of John in 1 John 2.18. So if you've got your Bible, would you turn back there for just a moment? A little tiny book of 1 John, chapter 2. Picking up in verse 18. This is helpful for us in our thought process. Children, John writes, the same John who wrote the Apocalypse. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now, many antichrists have come. And therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Isn't that interesting? You've heard that antichrist is coming, but I want you to know that antichrists have already come. Well, this adds an interesting dynamic. A passage like that has to inform our understanding of antichrist for one very special reason. First and Second John are the only books in the whole Bible that ever use the word Antichrist. It never appears in the book of Revelation. Now, most of us would think, hey, it must be all the way through the book of Revelation. It isn't. It never shows up. So we've got to go back to First and Second John and say, well, how does he use the word? What does he mean by it if we're really going to unpack what's going on in chapter 13 of Revelation. We'll come back to how those tie together. So whoever or whatever Antichrist is, from John's words in this passage, we know this, that 
there is a final manifestation of Antichrist that's coming, but in some sense it's already been here and is here even now. So something more than a simple first, uh, a simple individual person must be uh, useful in informing our thoughts about Antichrist. That said, let's go back to Revelation 13 and just look at the passage itself. And fortunately, these first 10 verses unpack themselves really well in four short sections. And I'm going to spend, so that you don't start looking at your watch and freaking out, uh, the first section is going to take up most of our time. And the last three will move really fast. So if you say, man, he's got four points, and this first point is apostolic in nature, uh, don't sweat it. We'll, we'll get to the next three, but they'll be a lot quicker than the, the first one. But we need to, to build out of this first one. So Revelation 13, let's look at verses 1 and 2. It's the first section. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, a beast with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, who we identified last time as Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Well, you see a passage like that, and what's the question we ask ourselves, what we've been asking all the way through when we get a picture like this? Is there some place else in the Bible where we see the same picture that can help us understand what's happening here, what this looks like? And fortunately, we have two portions that really dig into what we see in this passage. The first is in uh, Revelation chapter 17. I'm not going to touch that this morning. But the second, which I think is extraordinarily helpful, is the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And there, this picture that we see here gets unpacked in a wonderfully helpful way. So, if you have your Bible, I'm going to need you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to look, we're going to be going back and forth a little bit here, but Daniel chapter 7. And in my notes and in my slides, I had condensed these verses. We're going to have to look at them in more detail since we're technically challenged this morning. So uh, we're we're going to read them in a little more detail. But Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 2. This is one of the visions that Daniel had when he was in Babylon, when he was in captivity. Uh, We're going to read down through verse 8 for the first section here. So Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night... And behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. We're right back at the place where 13 opens. Satan's standing on the edge of the sea and something's happening out of the sea. Um, And the first, uh, sorry, verse 3. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. They were different from one another. Same thing, beast emerging out of the sea. This time we've got four. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another, like a leopard, 
with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. You see the parallels there, don't you, already? But we need to focus on one parallel in particular. Um, If you want to have a fuller explanation of what's going on in this chapter, when I taught through the book of Daniel, I went through this in detail. You can go back and get that online anytime you want. Um, Or I'm sure Teresa will make a DVD of it for you somewhere or a a CD. Um, But you can go back and, and get this. I can't spend all that time today. But the first thing you want to notice in this passage is that the beast in Revelation 13 shares the characteristics of the four beasts in Daniel 7. There's a a composite kind of thing going on here. It's not hard to see. It's in some way a composite because you have the same four animals. You have the leopard, the bear, the lion, and then this beast with ten horns. Now, In Daniel, it's four separate beasts, but in Revelation 13, it's one beast who looks like a leopard but has the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion and has seven heads and ten horns. So we're looking at at something that's nearly identical. There's a real tie between these two. So you've got this composite, but you also want to note, as you go through it, that it is a composite not of individuals, but of kingdoms. Those four were four kingdoms. And we would have every reason to believe then that the beast in Revelation 13 is also a kingdom of some sort. We're going to keep with the parallels. John's John's drawing from this vision as he gets the new vision. So let's go on in the chapter, picking up in verse 17, because it'll give us more information. Picking up in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 7. Now, These four great beasts, he explains them, which is really helpful, are four kings. We know each of them was an empire, so it's not the individual, but the idea of power or authority. That'll get explained actually in the text as we move through. Who shall arise out of the earth? But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then... Daniel says, I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, the one with the ten horns, which we see in Daniel in uh, Revelation 13 as well. And it was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. In other words, it really superseded all the kingdoms that came before it. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell... The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. So he's explaining it for us. We know that that's what's being talked about here. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Now, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. This will all get explained in a minute. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Haven't we already seen that in Revelation? 1260 days, right? The 42 months, the same thing. Time, time, and half time, three and a half years, same idea. This is all, all being carried over. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall, shall serve and obey them. It's astounding. It's this great picture that there will be these four world empires, but when that fourth empire is destroyed with the ten horns, whatever all that means, that final kingdom will be Christ's kingdom, and that's going to destroy everything else that came before it. So that's, that's one thing that Christ has already begun, is to usher his kingdom into the world. So it's a very hopeful chapter, even though it shows a lot of destruction. Now what's great is, and we don't have time to do it today, Chapter 8 of Daniel goes on to explain who the four kingdoms are specifically. That the, the lion represents the Babylonian world empire, that kingdom. And that the bear represents the Medo-Persian empire that conquered the Babylonian empire. And then the leopard is the Grecian empire, has four heads. After Alexander the Great died, it was divided into four, under four generals. And as that gave way, it gave way to ten sections. And then one grew up out of them that was exceedingly vicious, especially to the Jews. That was the one horn that persecuted the Jews terribly for 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Which kingdom gave way in some way to Rome, but contemporaneous with that, Christ's kingdom comes on the scene. So we get an explanation. The word tells us itself. So in other words, and we need to make this clear for ourselves as we think about Antichrist, if he's going to be a political power, this prophecy would tell us plainly that there will be no more global world powers prophesied after the four that are given to us here. The next one is the kingdom of Christ. So what does that mean? How do, how, do we, how do we dust all of that off? And yet we see the beast here in Revelation 13, and it's identified somehow with what Daniel saw back in chapter 7. So how do we tie it all together? Well, one thing's for certain, and that's what we want to stick with, the things that we can know for certain. <clears throat> that the historical rise and fall of these world empires prefigure in some way 
a final world empire and one that bears the traits of all that came before and to which they point. They were pointing all along. But it's not necessarily a political empire or a government because there were only four and he gave us the four. So something else is happening. Whatever this kingdom is, it's not a political military thing, not a machine. So I I was going to spend a little time on telling you why this prefiguring concept is common in the Bible. You see it all the way through Scripture. For instance, the flood in Genesis and Noah's Ark and then the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are both used in the New Testament as a prefiguring of final judgment that's to come on the world. That's the way the Scripture uses it. It it, it takes those real historical events and says they point to something else. Or the children of Israel, when they entered into the promised land, that's a picture, we're told in the New Testament, of entering into the rest of Christ and then entering into heaven eventually. That's that's how Scripture works. It uses these historical pictures and says now they are pointing toward a a more spiritual truth, something that's yet to come to, to pass. Second, remember John's words that we looked at earlier? That Antichrist is to come, but there already are Antichrists? The idea there is that there have always been world systems that are contrary to God's rule and his people. This is nothing new. This this has been the historical record. But behind them, inspiring them, if you will, is Satan's influence. And that's what we see in John's vision here. Let me try and illustrate that in more contemporary terms some way that we can get our mind around it in a more concrete way. Behind the murderous, godless rise of Marxist Stalinism and its opposition to all things biblical and Christian was the influence of the devil. That kind of a regime doesn't come to power without without some sort of demonic influence behind it, the murderousness of it. He was behind the rise of Mao Zedong in China and how he tried to stamp out all of Christianity or Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot in Cambodia. These together incited the murder of 94 million people in the 20th century alone. And those movements were dedicated to stamping out Christianity dedicated to to an an atheistic, naturalistic worldview. And each one of those was an antichrist. So in some sense, antichrist has been here in the past, in Babylon, in Medo-Persia, in Greece, in Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, in communist Russia, in China, in Cambodia, in Germany, and etc. And for For 215 million people today, Antichrist is here now. The way John notes, Antichrist is already here, he told us in 1 John. For instance, did you know that for the 17th year in a row, North Korea has been listed as the most dangerous place on the planet to be a Christian? 27% of their total population lives in labor work camps. 
27%. It's a capital offense to own a Bible. It's a capital offense to teach your children that Jesus is real. Christians in North Korea are staring at the face of Antichrist today because it's a thought system that is antithetical to all biblical truth and seeks to crush God's people under its feet. And yet there's a final Antichrist to come. We want to unpack that. So what I'm arguing is that Antichrist, again, is not so much a person as it is a global mindset, a a universal worldview that denies God, the very idea of God, and marginalizes and persecutes everyone who's not in sync with that viewpoint. A sort of dominant global groupthink. And all of that aligns perfectly with what we've already seen in the previous chapters, like the, the, the locust, the demonic deception that came along with the locust that came out of the pit, and then, and then the flood that came out of the mouth of the dragon trying to, trying to wipe out the church back in chapter 12. And its key features are really easily identifiable. They aren't hard to see. It's this simple. If you do not buy into a completely naturalistic view of humankind as a cosmic evolutionary accident, if you don't buy into the fact that men have no ultimate moral responsibility before God, that our moral responsibility is only a a cultural construct, that that if you don't buy into the idea that that material well-being is the ultimate good, for everyone on earth, and that self-government, personal autonomy, rules over all else, and that the ever-shifting cultural morality has the right to determine for us what's right and what's wrong versus the Word of God, and a self-defined spirituality. If you don't buy those concepts, you're out. You don't fit in the present world. And you'll suffer as a result of it. Right now, we don't. We're pretty comfortable. We can get our, in our little group here and hold those worldviews, and it's not a problem, and, and, and stand contrary to these. But some of you know you face it out there in the world, in your jobs, in academia, and other places. And you know if you mention the fact that man was a special creation of God, they'll look at you. And one of the wonderful false prophets of our age was Carl Sagan who promulgated this Antichrist by saying the universe is all there ever was, all that there is and all there ever will be. How many people drink that Kool-Aid day in and day out? Oh, they, they can say a lot of things outwardly, but inwardly, that's really what they believe. Beloved, that's Antichrist. And ultimately, its savagery becomes evident in how it blinds people to the gospel of Jesus Christ and sees them lost in hell under judgment for the very sin that they deny even exists. That's far more subtle and pernicious. For you see, you have far more control over people if they simply believe your version of reality. 
you don't need to have control, political control, over the world governments. You just have to get everybody under those governments to be thinking the same way. And we don't even see it coming. Extraordinary. Let me take you back to the four places where John uses that term in First and Second John just to, to see it teased out a little more carefully. Go back to First John chapter 2. Verse 18. We we want to look at all four of these together because they build an incredible picture for us. 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... Notice he doesn't say the Antichrist is coming. He He doesn't make it a definite article. He's just saying Antichrist is coming. He's going to use the definite article in a second, but you'll be surprised at how he uses it. And therefore... And now many antichrists have come, and therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now, go a little further, down to verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. What? That can be anybody. (laughs) This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That's all it takes. Let's let's go further. Chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything that's out there in the world. But test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Isn't that interesting? Oh, one more. Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John can't be much more plain about what his view of antichrist is, can he? I mean, you've got it in his words. So when you come over to Revelation 13, you've got to say, this has to inform what I'm I'm reading there. Somehow I've I've got to fit these two together. And so if I understand these correctly, when they're taken together, Antichrist is this. And I wish I had the slide. I have a summary statement here. You can always get the notes. I sent them out in the connection. This is the summary statement. Antichrist is the fundamental denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible and the entire worldview which springs from that revelation. 
So I deny that there was a creation by God. I deny that there's a special creation called humankind. I I deny that humankind all sinned together in Adam. I deny that we need a redeemer. I deny that that redeemer is the son of God come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, dying his substitutionary death on the cross that he might redeem lost humanity and grant us eternal life. I deny those things. Because the world just sprang into existence out of nothing. Mankind is the result of a spark in a mud puddle. And what's right and what's wrong is just something we've constructed as a culture. And there is no ultimate judgment to come on sin after all. And given that mindset, you can justify anything. Like the killing of 60 million babies in the womb in America. If you want to look at Antichrist... It's all around us. And if you hold the opposite view, woe be unto you in certain places. And it's going to get worse. The great antichrist of the last day is the secular denial of God in Christ that gains global acceptance and will demand a totally naturalistic worldview. No God of creation... No humankind is the special creation of God in his image. A holy, secular worldview. See, the thing is, we've got our eyes looking for a person, and Antichrist is already here. And what do we do when this becomes the worldview globally? And some people are still looking for a kid with a tattoo on the back of his head. And how much of this have we already drunk even in the church? So that we've got people who call themselves Christians today who say, I don't have to believe that God actually created the world, do I? Yeah. Why? Well, because that's what he revealed. I don't have to actually believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, do I? Yeah. Why? Because that's what God revealed. I don't actually have to believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the shed blood of Jesus alone on the cross, do I? Yeah, why? Because that's what God revealed. So every religion that denies the fundamental truth of Jesus in the Bible and his plan of salvation and the nature of those things Every cult that springs from those groups, every secular worldview that denies all of that, it's Antichrist. And you see, there's religious Antichrist and non-religious Antichrist. There's the Antichrist of Mormonism that denies the Jesus of the Bible. The Antichrist of Jehovah's Witness that denies the Jesus of the Bible. The Antichrist of continuing Judaism that denies the Jesus of the Bible. We're there. And we've got to face it. We've got to recognize what's going on. Well, let's go back to verses 3 and 4. Now, as I told you, the next three sections will move much quicker. Picking up in verse 3, we we saw this beast and it had the ten horns and the seven heads and, and it was like a leopard, but its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and and it's the dragon that gave it its power. It's the influence of Satan. And his throne and his great authority gave him authority over. And what, 
What greater authority can you have over people than to have authority over what they think? You want authority. There, there it is. And the beast, uh, and one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. It seemed to die, but then it came back to life. Almost kind of a mock resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? We'll unpack that further when we get further in the chapter. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? You can't fight. Don't we hear the, the comment today all the time? You don't want to be found on the wrong side of history, do you? Who can resist the beast? Man. The idea that this picture is an individual receiving some sort of a physical head wound seems unlikely given what we've already looked at. I'm not saying it can't be, but it doesn't seem to fit what we've already seen. Now, based on this verse, though, throughout history, there have been a number of people who have been identified as the Antichrist because they they thought this this might be a, a physical thing. So, for instance, in the early church, when Nero died... He died by killing himself, but he died, and there was a rumor going around Rome at the time, and Nero, of course, persecuting Christians horribly, being thought of as an antichrist, and people tried to make 666 out of his name. We've jumped through some of those hoops when we were going through Daniel. I might go back and show you those again later in the study, but they thought there was a rumor going around that Nero was going to come back from the dead and reascend the throne and persecute Christians again. And they thought, this is it. Nero's the Antichrist because he suffered this wound, but Nero never made it back. And I remember a lot of readers of the current prophetic trend who said when John Kennedy was shot in the head, he's going to rise up and he'll be the Antichrist because everybody's going to love him. And they love his social construct. And he can unite the world in love and and can make it happen. But he stayed dead too, didn't he? All those speculations have been fruitless because that doesn't work that way. In fact, in chapter 17, and I won't have you go there now, but in chapter 17 and verse 8, yeah, actually you do have to go there. Um, I need to show you something there. Really important. It's just a couple pages over. I know you can find it. None of you are numerically challenged. Chapter 17, look at verse 8. Fascinating. And we're going to come back to this, obviously, when we get to chapter 17. Referring to this same beast, he says in chapter 17 and verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Now remember the words about Jesus in the chapter 1, who is and who was and who is to come? I said this is kind of a mock Jesus in this sense, the beast. And so uh, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, which we're going to read again in chapter 13, um, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So all the other speculations of Antichrist aside, given the historical Antichrists and the present-day Antichrists and the Antichrist to come, I think it seems best to see this as understanding that time after time, 
the Antichrist thought system rises up as as an ideology, usually tied to a nation or a particular leader, and then it's brought down. It suffers its death, a a mortal wound. It's, It's crushed, and then it rises up again somewhere else with new leadership in a never ending repeat. The Antichrist system rises, it gets put down, it rises, it gets put down, it rises, it gets put down. It was, it is, and it is to come. The beast, which was not and is to come. Antichrist thought systems emerge and they die. But what of the world? Back in in chapter 13, how they worship the beast. You see, the world never stops giving allegiance to this thought system. It worships the beast and what it stands for. Godlessness raises its head over and over and over. In what way do they worship the beast? I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but 2 Corinthians 4 spells it out, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What does Antichrist do? Blinds the mind to the truth of Christ through a separate thought system. Blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What can be more hateful than to blind people to the truth of the gospel so that they spend an eternity in hell? It's far more savage than anything that can happen to us physically. And so to hear the present-day atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, all belief in God must go because all religion is terrible. It's all binding. It's all cruel. It's all wicked. And it frees mankind to live out his most base desires without guilt or shame or fear of judgment. Do away with God. Freud, do away with guilt. Yeah. That's the same Antichrist mindset. And so it continues in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 13. See, I told you these would move quicker. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. How does he work? The promulgation of his message. Blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's our time span again. Same one we've already looked at. When the church is persecuted and protected. And he's allowed to do this for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. I wish I could unpack that verse by itself because there is such this wonderful connection that God considers you can't blaspheme God without blaspheming his his dwelling. And what is his dwelling? It's his people. Wow. What an incredible connection that is. So he must blaspheme the church. You see what he's saying in the verse. So the beast will be allowed to have its day, and it does what it does by one primary means, by uttering haughty and blasphemous words. 
by, by what it teaches, but why, by what it promulgates as truth. And it will deny the truth of God, of the gospel, of sin, and of judgment, and of righteousness. And it will mock and make fun of everything that's sacred and holy and good. And isn't that where today's humor has gone? It'll have its 42 months. It'll have its 1,260 days. It'll have its three and a half years and its period of trampling down the people of God. But then we pick up in verse 7. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Those are sobering words. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This is pervasive. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Reminiscent of the letters to the seven churches, isn't it? If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And here then is a call for the endurance and the faithfulness of the saints, I should say so. Wow. So conquering the world in its deception and the church in its persecution... There will come a day when it might seem like the church and the gospel will be all but snuffed out. For those in North Korea, that day is now. But just as Jesus was crucified and buried, and even his disciples thought it was all over, the new dawn was just about to break. So no wonder verse 10 ends by saying, this calls for the endurance and the faith of the saints. This is for us. He's giving us this so that we can endure and so that our faith is actually increased. He hasn't given us this to scare us, but to make us aware and, and to bolster our faith. Well, then that begs the question, well, what provision in here has been made for believers so that we'll endure? And I think there's three in the text that come out quite, quite beautifully. First, go back to verses 5 through 7. While you're looking at that, let me just highlight the repeated phrase. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation. What's so good about that? Well, it reminds us that our God and King is as much Lord over Satan and the beast as he is over all else. He can't have this authority, except God allows it. These these are things that God is permitting. So, So don't fear that somehow God's lost control because Antichrist is so pervasive. No, trust him. Without God's permission, even the beast can do nothing. We can trust our Father who reigns over everything. No matter what the beast looks like or says or does, we can trust him. That's a wonderful word of affirmation there. Secondly, in verse 8, he says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Well, all with a qualification. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone 
whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of Lamb who was slain. (laughs) What's he saying? Believers have been promised that we will not be deceived because our salvation was decreed before God even made the world. Astounding. So here we have this, this unbelievable picture of Antichrist and saying, but if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, you won't be deceived. The believer will be preserved. Truth will keep you. You trust God's word and you endure. My grandfather, my mother said that my grandfather, I never heard him say it because he died when I was about five, but my grandmother used to say, my, grandf- my mother said that my grandfather said, I'm sorry that's so convoluted, <laughs> that if you believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts, you'll never doubt your beliefs or believe your doubts. That's right. Believe your beliefs. Believe what God has said. That's the call for us, to have faith, to trust God in it, to trust his word for the truth. Believers have been promised we won't be deceived. And I love this because our names were written before the world was even created. It's not a chance thing. It's an eternal thing. What a wonderful heritage the believer has. And then lastly, verse 10. And this seems a little cryptic, but it makes sense in the context. So if anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. And if anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Believers will all have our trials appointed by God. And so we're not at the mercy of the beast, even though it might look like it. Now, God knows what you can take and what I can take. He knows our individual strengths and weaknesses. He knows our, our constitutions. I've, I've heard people say this. You know, if, if someone were to come through the door right now and put a gun to your head and say, uh, either, either profess your faith in Christ or die, what would you do? Well, how do I know? I've never been in that position. And God knows our weaknesses and, and what we can and what we can't do. And some... Some will be appointed to captivity. Some will be appointed to be slain. Now, God will, will see to it that we're handled according to what we can handle by his grace. So, so don't, don't bother yourself with, with projecting out the worst that might happen that you won't be able to endure. Because God knows you better than you do. And he's already prepared for you. So... Some will go to captivity. Some will be slain by the sword. And it's going to happen. That'll, that'll be unpacked. But he is as much Lord over our sufferings as he is over our blessings. We can trust him. Each one of these is the same thing. You can trust him. You can trust him with what's going to happen in the world. You can trust him with yourself. You can trust him with your salvation. He can be trusted. And as we have our faith in him, we will have our endurance to go through. The very confidence of Jesus when he stood before Pilate is ours. And what was that confidence? Pilate said to him, Look, don't you know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus very calmly replied, You would have no authority me over you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. My father's the authority, not you. Christ is the authority, not Antichrist can only do what he's allowed. And as Jesus trusted the Father, so do we. 
For in our faith in him, we overcome the world and the beast and even Satan himself. Now, I know I've thrown a lot at you, and we didn't even have slides. So I'm not sure it was uh, able to get through. but, But you can see how as you work through the passage, it makes sense that there's so much there for us to know and to understand. Now, if you're not a believer here today, I hope you can see the kind of trouble you're in. I don't say that lightly. I say that so that you'll come to grips with your lost condition. If you have bought into this antichrist mindset and rejected the truth of the gospel and of the revelation of God, repent. Turn from that. Come to Christ right now. There is endurance for all that's to come. There is forgiveness of your sin. There is life everlasting. There is joy beyond your wildest imagination. Found in the Redeemer, the Lamb who was slain. And for us believers, those who already know Christ here today, take heart. It's already been mapped out. We know what's coming. We know what it looks like. We know that Christ has already made provision for us. We have, we're equipped, we're armed. We don't face this with, without that equipping. And above all, we can trust him. The one who's redeemed us. The one who has made us for himself and saved us from our sin. What a place to live in the midst of watching what goes on in the world around us. Obviously, some of this will get teased out in more detail as we work through the, the passage. But I think you've had enough for today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come prepare for the last song and then let's pray and wait on the Lord for a few moments. Heavenly Father, uh, there's a lot here that's very sobering, very challenging. For some, it might be upsetting. For others, I know much of what we covered this morning might be new and so it's been a bit confusing or difficult to digest. So I really pray for your Spirit's work to help clarify and illumine, make these things useful. You will trample the enemy under your feet today in giving us that truth that bolsters our hearts as we see what's happening in the world around us, returns our faith to Jesus and to him alone. Father, I pray for those who don't know you today. Oh, how they need your spirit to open their eyes, to believe the truth of your word above the lie of Antichrist. Set them free from those things that would bind their souls and carry them off to a Christless eternity. Lord, work in the hearts and minds of everyone here today. Let us not leave this place unmoved, unchanged. In Jesus' name.